Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And we are joined again this week by Dean Seal. Hey, glad to be back. Yeah, it's nice to have you. Um, We have a ton of stuff to get to this week. No big surprises that the main segment of our show is going to be a talk that you guys had with our very own Jimmy Hoover, our Supreme Court reporter, about the news that Justice Breyer is retiring. Uh, yeah, um, I I said it when we talked to Jimmy, uh, when something like this happens, we send up the Jimmy signal and uh, he was a pro as always. Um, there's uh, it's obviously huge news when a Supreme Court justice retires. And then, of course, there's going to be a lengthy battle ahead um, about who's going to replace him. Always great to talk to Jimmy about that stuff. Yeah. And we have a, a few other things to shout out this week. It felt like it was a real just a banner week for legal news. Um, yes. The first thing I wanted to mention is that our own Law360 Pulse put out something called the Leaderboard this week. It's a really cool, um, well-rounded ranking of what makes law firms successful. It takes into account stuff like their culture, their reputation, their business practice. So a lot of facets there. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give it a special shout out because it's their very first one. They've worked on it more than a year to put this together. And it's based on tons of data. We did a bunch of our own surveys from Law360 and then also took some data from our parent company, LexisNexis. So if people haven't checked that out yet, I would really encourage them to go to our website and play around with it. Great job by the data team. Um, I, as always. I ran, yeah, at, at, as always, they do great work. I ran some data of my own and the calculations came back that I am entitled to six weeks of paternity leave. And folks, I'm taking it starting next <laughs> week. You wow. won't have Alex Lawson to kick around on the podcast for uh, uh, a month and a half or so. You're going to drop right off the uh, host leaderboard for at least six weeks. I know. Um, and it's a it's a, it's a hard out too. please do not send me any messages. Uh, I'm not interested in hearing about it. The podcast will be in good hands. You want to tell the people uh, what the plan is here, Amber? Yeah, I'm really happy that we have such a deep bench. It's it's uh, nice that you're able to go spend some time with your little one. And I'll be joined again during this period by both Dean and also Haley Knopf that the listeners have also gotten to know over the last few weeks. So we're going to have a good crew. We're going to have some fun. Very stoked, yeah. Yeah. Um, I will miss you, but I won't really miss working, if that if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> that, that is somehow fair. understandable. Yeah. Yes. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of news to get to. Uh, and let's start, um, let's start with Dean. Dean, you got uh, I know there's some there's a very noteworthy trial for us to talk about. Sure. So before we go to the highest court in the land, I thought it'd be fun to kick things off with a story about Cardi B, who's the New York City born rapper who rose to fame as an internet celebrity first and then kind of came into the mainstream with her acclaimed 2018 debut album, Invasion of Privacy. Yes. So er earlier this week, a jury found in the rapper's favor on claims of defamation and invasion of privacy against (laughs) Georgia-based YouTuber and celebrity gossip blogger Latasha Kebe, better known online as Tasha K. So Cardi, whose real name is Belaclis Almanzar, sued Kebe and her company in 2019, alleging that Tasha K had posted a series of online videos spreading malicious rumors about the rapper, like that she had herpes and HPV, that she took illegal drugs, cheated on her husband, performed debasing sexual acts in public, and prostituted for a living, in the words of the suit. Law 360's own Rosie Mannins covered the trial that started up in Atlanta earlier this month after some delay. And reading through her articles is a wild ride. Uh, One tidbit I really liked was that any self-professed Cardi fans had to be cut from the jury pool. Yeah, I mean, I have loved reading Rosie's missives from this trial because they've been very interesting. Cardi B is such a colorful celebrity to begin with, so a lot of that seeped into the trial. Aren't we all Cardi B fans? How'd they even find a jury? 
For real, I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, yes. You got to think yeah. the hardcore fans, uh, they, they weren't willing, if they were going to really stick up for it, they weren't willing to admit it to the court. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about what it was like from the trial and, and sort of some of the highlights. Sure. So things got pretty explosive. Now, because this case really involved Tasha Kay's gossip videos, those expletive-laden videos were shown to jurors who were, according to Rosie, having some really strong reactions to what they were seeing. Now, both Tasha Kay and Cardi B wound up testifying, with Tasha Kay admitting on the stand that she had dragged and targeted Cardi B to drive engagement with her online content. At one point, the jurors also watched one of KB's videos in which she's talking about some of her claims, like Cardi's infidelity, and said, I knew that shit was fake. I wanted the money. This is a business. This is called ratings. Ooh. Yeah. So Cardi, meanwhile, <laughs> testified that Tasha Kay's videos were essentially a high-level form of cyberbullying and really got to her. They caused her to deal with some with anxiety and depression and even some suicidal thoughts. Now, Tasha Kay ultimately tried to walk back her admissions, and her lawyers kept contending that Cardi hadn't actually proven that any of those allegations she had made were false. And they'd also said that the evidence they were putting on was dis- that Cardi was putting on was disingenuous because they're only showing certain parts of Tasha's videos. Uh, I do wonder how the couldn't prove that they were fake or, or, or disingenuous flew when Tasha Kay is testifying herself that she, I don't know, fabricated or at least exaggerated it. How'd that all fly with the jury? It did not fly with the jury, um, yeah. so to speak. The damage had already been done at that point. KB was found liable by the jury for defamation, invasion of privacy through portrayal in a false light, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Now, the jury also awarded Cardi over $3.8 million in punitive damages, compensatory damages, and costs, though Tasha Kay's attorneys say that they do plan to appeal. So I talked to Rosie a little bit about this. She said one of her biggest takeaways from the whole ordeal was the, the power of the jury actually seeing Tasha Kay's videos, mm. uh, which showed her embracing a very different persona than the one that she had put on in court. Uh, and Rosie said that it was the most incredibly damning evidence against her and impossible to avoid. Uh, I've got a line here directly from Rosie. They showed everything the jury needed, including the malicious intent and the knowledge the statements she was making were false. It was just incredible evidence. And in my view, those videos were the main reason the YouTuber lost and that the damages were so high. So like I said, there, there is an appeal um, that's probably going to come through at some point, but it's a really dramatic outcome for a case that I think uniquely shines this legal spotlight on YouTuber culture and celebrity gossip culture that we don't necessarily get to talk about all that often. Yeah, this is a super interesting one. I mean, even though it's completed, I would encourage people to go back and read some of the trial coverage because it is both so colorful and also these things don't always make it to trial. So mm-hmm. it was really interesting to see it play out in that format. I'm also just impressed that we made it through a uh, Cardi B segment without producer Steve doing an impression of her like the last time we did it. So I consider that progress. <laughs> We've gotten very classy here at the Person yes, Podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, while we're on that classy tip, I'm going to go ahead and push us over into the realm of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I know we've got the big Briar news as the the main segment on our show yes. today, but we did have some other high court action that I think is is worth talking about because it's going to be some big future news. On Monday, the Supreme Court said it would hear a challenge to race-conscious admissions policies at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. This is a pair of cases that could essentially upend affirmative action in higher education. This has been bubbling up uh, in the circuit courts in various iterations for a while now. And of course, the high court has has waded in before. But tell us about these cases and the specific questions that they are going to pose to the to the justices. 
Yeah, both Harvard and UNC have admissions policies that take race into account in order to essentially foster a more diverse campus environment. Mm-hmm. And a group called Students for Fair Admissions sued the schools, saying that the use of race in these admission processes um, discriminates particularly against Asian American applicants. Mm-hmm. The schools say they use race as um, what they call a plus factor. So that's a narrowly tailored way to give an extra boost to some of the applicants. Yeah. And and again, they point to that's so that they can have student bodies that are diverse and they cite a bunch of benefits that flow from that kind of diversity in, a, in an academic setting. The SFFA, that student group, is actually led by an anti-affirmative action legal strategist. His name is Ed Blum. And they argue that Asian Americans are penalized for their race to the benefit of less qualified Black or Hispanic applicants. That group wants the court to completely end the use of race as an admissions factor. So they're going for full-on ban it all, don't Mm -hmm. let this happen anymore. Mm -hmm. Lower courts had largely, across the board, just agreed with the schools. They'd cited a lot of Supreme Court precedent that allows for these kinds of considerations in college admissions, as long as they're not the result of racial animus and that they're narrowly tailored. Right. But I mean, now we've got the Supreme Court taking this case up. So what are court watchers expecting to see? Yeah. In the past, the Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld versions of affirmative action in college admissions. But the makeup of the court, as we know, is now decidedly conservative. Justice Clarence Thomas is an outspoken opponent of affirmative action. Chief Justice John Roberts has also said in the past that he opposes affirmative action. So we've got a lot of people on the record not liking these kinds of policies. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, our own reporter, Chris Villani, who's come on Pro Se uh, to talk about many things, and I think in the past we've actually had him talk about this Harvard case, we have, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's our resident expert in this now since he's covered a lot of it as it's made its way through the legal system. Um, he talked to a bunch of experts, and there is a consensus out there that Harvard's going to face an uphill climb. Um, the experts he spoke with pointed out that with a essentially a conservative supermajority in the court, Harvard has to win over at least two conservative justices. And to do that, they're likely going to have to lean heavily on precedent and also potentially try to stake out some kind of middle ground, one of those narrow rulings we sometimes get on these hot button issues. Do we have a sense of what that might look like? I mean, my understanding of it is like we the like past waves of precedent have already kind of tried to strike a, a type of middle ground where it's like you can consider race as a factor. It, co- it, of course, can't be the sole factor and it has to be part of this you know, wide net you cast, a holistic approach that's been used. What might this sort of new iteration of a middle ground look like as they tried, as, as they get ready to argue here? Yeah, it's a really fair question because you're right. The previous cases have done um, what I think I referred to earlier as like a narrowly tailored approach is what they look yeah. for. The court could determine that first off, they'd have to agree that there's a compelling interest in maintaining diversity on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way the but they could curtail the way schools do that even more than what is already in place by past precedent. They could potentially put in any number of additional guardrails around how much race can be taken into account in admissions. Yeah. So we may see more push toward that. Now, exactly what the guardrails would be, we've got to wait wait for arguments and the opinion eventually. But, sure. but you could see a scenario where they say, yes, it could be considered, but here's a ton of limitations on how you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that would essentially uphold the precedent, though. And it would not give the schools the clean win that they'd really prefer to continue handling admissions the way they have been up until now. The other approach, though, um, that I think we're probably going to see is trying to convince at least two conservative justices that stare decisis means they can't just overturn this collegiate affirmative action because there is so much precedent here. 
In the past, the courts held that courts and government should be really reluctant to interfere with decisions made by colleges and universities, particularly around the makeup of their student body. The courts weighed in on this this issue at least six times. They've always upheld the ability of college admissions officers to maintain control, even if they've put some limits on how they do it. They've, They've ultimately left the control with those those colleges. So if the court breaks from that, they really do have to point to some compelling reason that the precedent is being overturned now. I think, you know, we'll we'll see if that happens. There's many that would say um, stare decisis is really in jeopardy in general at the court these days. So yes. we'll, we'll see how that goes. We but, actually got to that. Uh, stay tuned because we, we hit on that a little bit with Jimmy in the uh, Breyer legacy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Interview, but yes. Yeah. So I think the bottom line here is that there's no circuit split on mm-hmm. on what happened and nothing like that compelled the justices to take up this issue. So for many court watchers, that's essentially an indicator that at least some of the justices agreed to hear the cases in the first place with the idea of bringing about some sweeping change to the college admissions process. So certainly this is going to be one we track and talk about in the future. I'm sure we'll hear from Jimmy on this topic at some point in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Justice Stephen Breyer has never been the type of jurist who made headlines, but that all changed this week as he announced his retirement from the Supreme Court, opening up a critical vacancy in the court's dwindling liberal block. The coming weeks will see a wave of speculation about his possible replacements and political wrangling over the confirmation process, but we wanted to talk to our old friend, Law 360 Supreme Court whiz Jimmy Hoover, about the legacy and the legal footprint that Breyer leaves behind. Welcome back to the show, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. So good to have you back on. Obviously, a justice retires. We send up the Jimmy signal. Uh, <laughs> glad you could oblige us. You wrote uh, um, about Breyer's legacy this week for us, and you used some pretty interesting language. You peppered in words like practical, professorial, and my a personal favorite, the grind of the court's quotidian work <laughs> uh, to describe the way that he did his job. You basically made it seem like he wasn't exactly the glamorous type, um, but can you can you just uh, expand a little bit on his general profile and how he was perceived on the bench? It, it's a low profile. It's you know there are no <laughs> yeah. mugs on Amazon with Justice Breyer's face on it, unlike mm-hmm. you know past members of the court like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for instance. He didn't have or the the cult of personality of a Justice Antonin Scalia. Right. He wasn't known for you know, flowery, soaring majority opinions like a Justice Anthony Kennedy. So that's why I kind of say he had a a much lower profile. I think he's, according to some uh, studies, he's actually the least recognized (laughs) member of the Supreme Court. I think more people would probably say that Judge Judy was on the court than (laughs) the Justice (laughs) Stephen Breyer. I think I remember there was like polling about who is like the most anonymous or the or like you say the least recognizable, and he kind of looks like a like a car mechanic or something. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, but that's not to say that he had no impact whatsoever during mm-hmm. his nearly twenty eight years on the court. I mean, he had a, a a few pretty significant majority rulings to his name. It's just that you know his his judicial style was was fairly modulated by you know. Uh, narrowness by caution. So he would constantly in his in his writings 
be concerned with the effects that a particular decision would have on mm-hmm. the public, on litigants. Um, he was not someone known um, for being overly attached to like first principles, regardless of the the, the practical outcome of a particular mm-hmm. case. And there are you know, uh, several different examples of that. But during oral arguments, it would really come out when he would say, you know, what what is going to be the effects of this decision on the ground? And, and to a lot of conservative justices and jurists, you know, those are those are kind of considerations that are easily dismissed as like policy rationale. So that's kind yeah. of the place in which he would depart from his conservative colleagues. He would also look to, for instance, the purpose of a particular law, statute, or um, you know, constitutional provision to decide specific cases. These kind of extra textual uh, considerations yes. are not things that uh, conservative justices pay a whole lot of attention to. Um, so that, that that's kind of like a, a quick snapshot of who he was and and his or who he is. Uh, he's still on the court. Um, <laughs> yes, his uh, his judicial philosophy. So we get that he wasn't necessarily a celebrity justice, but he did write some pretty important decisions. Like you said, runs through a few of the majority opinions that he wrote that uh, are going to leave a lasting impact on the court's legacy. I think the first one that comes to mind or the first set of opinions that come to mind are in the mm-hmm. area of abortion. Um, so in 2000, he wrote the court's majority opinion in Stenberg versus Carhartt. This was a decision that struck down a Nebraska state law banning, uh, you know, a, a certain type of second trimester abortion procedure, basically focusing on the effect that this law would have on abortion access in the state, and and that's something that we saw again in in a 2016 ruling in Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. This was you yeah. know another abortion case involving like a a law requiring doc abortion doctors have hospital admitting privileges um, at nearby hospitals. Right, um, you know, listeners might recall that there was a similar case to that recently called June Medical, and and he actually wrote a procurium in that one as well. And, and in both of those kind of admitting privileges cases, he focuses on the effect of this law on abortion access in the state as a basis to strike it down as unconstitutional. But you know, it, he had other majority opinions as well. He he just recently wrote one basically holding that Texas and other Republican states lacked standing to challenge the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. I you know, he he didn't have the same track record as someone like Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was a more moderate justice. It's just a matter of basically, uh, it's a function of the politics of the court mm-hmm. and who's in the middle and who is more senior. So Justice Anthony Kennedy had a penchant for saving some of the big blockbuster decisions sure. for himself. Yeah, um, Breyer was his, uh, you know, he was senior to Breyer for much of his career. So he wasn't able to have that same impact in the sense of, you know, big majority opinions to his name, mm-hmm. but in the ones that we did see, that they 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 were pretty significant, and um, you know, he, he again he had some some pretty uh, significant dissents as well during his yeah. lengthy tenure. Yeah, yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. You already said he's not. Um, I mean, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is sort of the go-to, like, sort of uh, contemporary reference for like stinging dissents. Yeah, he wasn't it, really Breyer didn't have a jabot. You know, he doesn't have a <laughs> dissent jabot. <laughs> Okay, but but like you say, he was uh, he could get in there and mix it up sometimes. What uh, what about these dissents? What are like the ones to know when you're talking about Breyer? Uh, probably the most famous is in 2015. He he writes a dissent in a case called Glossop versus Gross, and this is where he outlines his opposition to the death penalty and explains why he believes it violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And once again, mm-hmm. we're seeing him kind of look to the reality of a situation and saying that. 
you know, the death penalty involves three constitutional defects. It's seriously unreliable. There's arbitrariness. And he, he basically said there's, there's unconscionably long delays that undermine its penological purpose. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was another one in 2011. It's a, it's a more minor case, but it, it also kind of goes to this theme that I've been talking about, which is like, what's going to happen you know, to litigants as a result of a court's ruling? And this one had to do with, instead of death penalty, it was consumer arbitration agreements. And there was a, a law that tried to basically yes. say that there could be class action waivers or there couldn't be class action waivers in consumer arbitration agreements. Mm-hmm. The court held that that was preempted by you know a federal law, the Federal Arbitration Act. And Breyer basically goes through um, what he considers to be like a, a really bad outcome in this case, where consumers will be financially like it's it's there would be a cost prohibition against actually pursuing individual you know actions against uh, some of the companies here because it's you know too expensive and that you know class actions would have been the more economical way to go so yeah like, that you're undermining again, the entire idea of class actions by forcing exactly. them into arbitration or go one at a time yeah right that definitely sort of speaks to that real world analysis that you're talking about that's uh, sort of a hallmark of uh, his decision making let's shift gears a little bit though and talk about Breyer's role in the current makeup of the court how has his position among his colleagues shifted uh, as the court has become increasingly kind of drifting towards more conservative bent? Well, I think we've seen his kind of role diminish in a sense in that, you know, he's no longer able to play an outsized role in some of these big controversial cases, like in some of the abortion cases that I, I mentioned now that there is a kind of new critical mass, a new supermajority of conservative justices on the court. I've seen in some of his recent writings almost a frustration with the direction that the court has taken in yeah. recent years. Um, you know, it, it was a pretty <laughs> uh, obscure case involving uh, sovereign immunity law just a few years ago in a case called uh, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt. Hey, the international trade reporters on the call love sovereign immunity stuff, okay? Yeah. So, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, it's fine. This was a case involving whether states could be sued in other, uh, you know, in other states' courts in private civil actions, mm-hmm. and there was a precedent that said they could, and then the Supreme Court said that that precedent is bunk and that they couldn't be. Okay, that's a long way of saying they got rid of a precedent. Yes, um, and Justice Breyer used this case and used his dissent to really sound and ring the alarm bells about what was happening at the Supreme Court when it came to precedent and the court's treatment of precedent. He basically says, by overruling these precedents, even in obscure cases involving sovereign immunity, the court is sending out signals to lawyers and their clients that they can't rely on the precedent of the Supreme Court or that they should welcome challenges to the precedent of the Supreme Court. And he kind of famously warned, like, I wonder what precedents will be next. And he even mm-hmm. cited, you know, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey abortion ruling in that case, which led a lot of people to suspect that Breyer was basically saying abortion is now on the chopping block. Well, guess what's happening this term at this look around there. <laughs> right. Yeah, they, yes. they are considering uh, overruling Roe versus Wade. So it was kind of prescient there. And, and, and that's basically the circumstances under which he now finds himself retiring mm-hmm. from the court. Uh, I think that gives us a really good snapshot of the kind of jurist he was, the kind of thinker and writer he was, you, paint, you, you did a good job of sort of saying, like, you know, very practical-minded, very, you know, an, very analytical in the way he goes about his job. We would be remiss, however, if we didn't ask you to uh, talk about potential replacements. That is what's going to dominate the conversation here in the coming weeks. And uh, I would definitely encourage everyone to check out the term this week. Jimmy and Natalie um, are going much deeper on this. But uh, the president's already made some waves just in terms of saying the type of person he will nominate. Tick off a couple names for us here. 
Yeah, so the names you, you basically got to know, you've probably heard them elsewhere, but um, uh, D.C. Circuit Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, she actually was a former Breyer clerk. Um, she ah. sits on the, the powerful uh, Federal Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., which is considered like a big feeder court yes. um, to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, obviously Biden has confirmed today that he is going to be nominating um, the first black woman Supreme Court nominee. So that kind of narrows the pool of candidates down to Jackson, uh, some of the front runners, at least to Jackson. Yep. And another candidate often mentioned in the mix is uh, the current California Supreme Court Justice Leandra R. Kruger, who has you know a lot of experience as an appellate advocate, even before the Supreme Court, um, arguing 11 times. Uh, there's another candidate in U.S. District Judge uh, J. Michelle Childs. She's actually a, a current nominee for the D.C. Circuit, but but right now still on the on the trial court before her confirmation. So so Biden says basically he's going to uh, name his nominee uh, by the end of February. Um, just a little note on timing. Breyer in his retirement letter today basically said that I'm going to <laughs> retire assuming that my successor has been nominated and confirmed. So this isn't mm. a situation like Kennedy, right? Where like the term ends and then he announces his retirement and there's this vacancy over the summer Yeah, um, where Kavanaugh is then ultimately nominated. No, like what's happening now is Breyer is engineering his uh, retirement such that there will not be a vacancy so that uh, you know mm -hmm. there won't be a repeat potential situation of you know maybe sc the Scalia vacancy where that was kept open of course um, for the next right. president. Yeah, sort of a sort of a conditional retirement, if you will. Uh, well, uh, it's going to be a busy couple weeks uh, as we go through the circus here, the very important work of putting a new justice on the court. I'm sure we'll probably bug you again uh, once we have a once we have a name and a confirmation process to dissect. Uh, Jimmy Hoover, thank you again for coming on Pro Se. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks, guys. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And uh, Alex, I love that we have movies to talk about again. We're, we, we're, we're going back to movie news. Um, you know, on Pro Se, whenever we talk about the ADA, we're usually talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act. Not so. <laughs> not this time. Today, we're talking about Ana de Armas. Uh, do I have any Ana de Armas uh, super fans in the chat? Oh, definitely. But you can't. <laughs> no one calls her ADA. Is that a thing? Is that a, uh, is that a gossip <laughs> thing I've missed? I, I don't know if you were listening 10 <laughs> seconds ago when I did, uh, oh, okay. but uh, yeah. Um, Initialized her, so, nice. Yeah, well, okay. If, if you're a fan of Ana de Armas, query this. Are you a big enough fan of hers to sue over not seeing her in a movie? Because if you are, I have got a class action for you. Um, <laughs> there, uh, two men uh, last week filed a class action, a proposed class action in California against Universal Studios for promoting Ana de Armas' appearance in the 2019 film Yesterday, only for her to be left, only for her scenes to be left on the cutting room floor. These guys say in their suit that her presence in the movie's trailer and then her subsequent omission from the final cut 
really devastated them and deceived them <laughs> to the tune of uh, it's a five million dollar damages request. Of course, it uh, is. Wow. damages sure. request Reasonable. should always yes, damages request should always be taken with a grain of salt when you file a complaint. I think we know that as legal journalists. Here, uh, you know, this is just kind of a minimum under the various um, California uh, laws they're suing under. But that's the basic gist of it. Um, Here's what I love about this. Okay. Um, you often hear stories about, you know, maybe not someone of her stature. I mean, she's gotten very popular. But mm -hmm. you hear a lot of stories about other actors who think they're going to be in a movie. They gather all of their family or oh, a sure, TV yeah. show to, like, watch the premiere and then tragically realize everything they shot was cut. You don't hear fans a lot being the ones who are aggrieved. It's yeah. usually the actors themselves. Well, these guys are aggrieved. Um, they <laughs> are uh, they are alleging uh, it's a it's a basic fleet of like false advertising, unfair business practices. Just to walk you through it here, they they both plunked down three dollar three American dollars and ninety nine cents to Amazon to rent the movie after they say they viewed the trailer and Ana de Armas is in the trailer. And she's nowhere to be found, and they're uh, they're seeking restitution. I, uh, uh, Dean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I just I gotta wonder how they're gonna certify this class. Am I in this? Because I because I watched it and had a light disappointment. Yeah, I just I, I, well, there's a lot of little details here that I'm I'm wondering how they're gonna get filled in. Uh, there but pretty are, much, I mean, if I if I plunk down three dollars and ninety nine cents on Amazon to rent this bad boy, am I in? Am I in this suit now? I, I mean, I guess you would have to attest to being sort of disappointed or or feeling deceived about. Um, the reason you plunked down the money, right? Of of seeing her in the trailer. It would make you similarly situated for sure. Yes. But I, was, I was certainly a little disappointed with yesterday, but not not for this reason. I don't know if yeah. I could sue, but let me I, talk uh, to my lawyer. Now, Alex, this case does have some bearing, some resemblance to another lawsuit, isn't that right? Yeah, this has popped up in some of the some of the first round of reporting on this case, which is sort of a occupying the funny pages of the legal beat, like it is right now on Pro Se. Um, there was a 2011 <laughs> lawsuit in Michigan over the Ryan Gosling film Drive, where the studio got sued for a trailer that made that movie look like, quote, a high-speed action driving film. Instead of it's, uh, if you've seen it, it's kind of like a slow burn, hyper-violent character study. And that got tossed after the judge basically found that the trailer wasn't deceptive. I like that one even better yeah. than this one over yesterday because have you ever seen those things that pop up on YouTube pretty regularly where they'll take like, I don't know, the opening sequence from Schitt's Creek, but when you put it to the music of succession, it's suddenly very moody and like a drama. Yeah, like, right, yeah. I love those things where you're like, oh, if you just cut this differently, suddenly it's a horror movie or whatever. Mm, yes, yes. So or like, that one yeah. tickles me in a way that just leaving out the actress is not as funny as that that yeah. allegations that drive should have been just a another Fast and Furious. Yeah, right. this is this is more binary. I mean, they're saying we thought this actress was in it and now she's not, rather than like the mood that it casts or whatever. This also, um, mm -hmm. my sister was visiting me this weekend, and um, you know, it's Omicron's everywhere. So we were in my house on Saturday night, and we sit down to watch a movie. We're flipping through some stuff, and there's a Netflix movie called oh, I can't remember. It's a rom com one. It's called like the the fix up the matchup something um and i've actually set it up it. is that what set the, it up uh, that's set it, it, set up, it yeah. up with uh, glenn now powell and yeah mm -hmm. oh they are now advertising it with a thumbnail of pete davidson who is oh, barely in yeah. that movie mm -hmm. oh, man. but he's Netflix very popular now yes. oh, yeah so this is common practice in the movie industry to you uh, know hype up yeah. some stars yeah um but you know usually they're in the movie even right. uh, even <laughs> right. in he a minor way pete davidson. he is in it 
Yeah. Um, so I'll be interested. I honestly will be interested to see where this goes. I'm a little bit of a trailer head. I love watching movie trailers. And Same, like, yeah. I've definitely noticed discrepancies. Well, like when, when, when stuff is cut and it's noticeably cut, I, I mean, I've never even given thought to taking legal action over it. We'll see where it goes. But like the um, the Rogue One trailer comes to mind. I don't know if oh, any, yeah. any Star Wars so in the of, chat. Oh yeah, tons of stuff that never actually showed up. Yeah. That was like famously chopped up in post. Right. But you know, um, there, there's like a whole other movie that nobody ever got to see. We'll get out of here on this. I'm considering bringing some legal action of my own related to Anna de Armas movie. She's Great. got a couple. She's got a couple projects tied up uh, in like development hell, and I'm thinking about just suing to get them out. Do you guys know about this Marilyn Monroe movie she's making? I have oh. heard of that. Yeah. It's yeah, called, it's called, it's called Blonde. One. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of like, I guess it's like this like hypersexualized like, uh, you know, vision of her life and like the, the director's fighting with Netflix over it. And also, Amber, you'll get a kick out of this. She's in like an erotic thriller with Ben Affleck, who she used to date, which oh. is called Deep Water, which Oof. is the directorial, uh, the the return to the director's chair of Adrian Lyne, who gave us Fatal Attraction, yeah. Indecent Proposal, and Unfaithful. I was legitimately like hyped for this movie and it's like it's gonna get buried somewhere i think because i think that's more of their like pr people because they don't date anymore and it was gonna be all alex right. i feel like you have at least five million dollars worth of claimed damages on your yeah. plate there oh that's the other thing i wanted to mention by the way when dean was talking about like how these guys came to came to think to file this lawsuit uh one guy lives in california the other guy lives in maryland and <laughs> they somehow found a lawyer that said they two of these guys have common claims Let's see who else is uh, feeling <laughs> feeling jilted here. What a match. And that's how they knew it would be a class action. That's the best. I, I mean, before yeah. that, it was one lawsuit. And they said, like, no, we there's dozens of us. We got two. There's literally dozens of us, probably. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the the Ana de Harmas high. And honestly, the other the other thing is this is really a win for Stan culture. You know, the, <laughs> oh, the, sure. the Ana de Armas hive demands restitution. So uh, if you're interested in that, uh, keep your eyes peeled to this one. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jimmy Hoover, and our contributing reporters, Jacqueline Bell, Chris Villani, and Rosie Mannins. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening now. That really helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.